You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and earlier in the year we had the opportunity to have a reminisce with Frank Flood before he wrapped up and headed back to retirement in Ireland. And Frank had been the first Consul General in Vancouver, but the role has been expanded to include Western Canada. And Cathy Gagan has been appointed the Consul General for Western Canada. And Cathy has uh, been with Foreign Affairs for a number of years, and we're going to hear about that. And uh, a keen interest in culture. She was with the Culture Unit. Prior to that, she participated at Expo 2020 in Dubai and uh, focusing on South Asia, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, first of all, Cathy, welcome and thanks a million for taking the time. Pleasure to meet you. Hi, Austin. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to meet you too. Where Where are you a native of? Um, now you've gone straight. That seems like a straightforward question to open with, but for me it's complicated. Um, yeah. I'm the youngest of eight, but uh, my my dad was from Galway and my mum is from Sligo, um, and they actually met in New York. So the oldest uh, five in the family. Uh, were born in New York and then the family moved back to Ireland where the next three were born and I spent a lot of time growing up like a lot of people do staying with their grandparents or visiting their grandparents in the west and so I kind of I have to say that you're supposed to have your allegiance where you were born but thanks uh, to, to the strength of my daddy's personality I would say that I'm a Galway girl but on technicalities um, you could say I'm from me and then I've lived for almost the last 20 years, almost entirely in Kildare. So I've okay. had a great fun for Kildare as well. Well, Cathy, I can totally relate. Because when someone asks me where I'm from, I say I'm from Galway. But there you go. That's the power of Galway. It is. It is. But because my father was in the bank, I have to put my hand up and say I'm from somewhere. Even We moved around. So, yes, yes. It, you have to hand, you have to wave some flag. And I'm glad we're both waving the Galway flag. <laughs> but, but, um, being the youngest of eight, eight and I'm the youngest of six, um, you know, it, that in itself has its interesting challenges. But also when you transition from different cultures, given that you were born back in Ireland, um, you grew up then in the Irish culture 100%, even though the older members, how old was the eldest in the family when you guys came back, when your parents came back? So she would have, so they were kind of like in their, they had gotten as far as their teens. By the All right. They came. So they right. were kind of, yeah. So yeah. like early, early teens and um, down to kind of a baby. It was a baby. So they were kind of straddling kind of. Yeah, yeah. Both, yeah. 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 Formative years were spent in America. Right. And do you think, did any of that influence their behavior and their attitudes and then how that would have reflected within the family and on you? Well, I know I got flagged a lot for my accent when I was growing up because I didn't exactly sound like I grew up in the bog in Mead. So I didn't quite have an American accent. But um, And also we, we called things by the wrong words. So we would have always said diapers instead of nappies and other things that made us sound like a lunatic in the 80s when we were saying them. Um, so there was kind of little things like that. But, you know, my, my parents were so, they always wanted to go home to Ireland. So they loved their time in America. But my dad in particular desperately wanted to go home. So I think it was, it was a very Irish household, even when they were in America. So it wasn't too alien. Um, right, so, right. Yeah. yeah. And then um, did that, would you think, in any way in, influence you in where you went in your career and wanting and how you are now as a representative of Ireland abroad? 
I think it's really kind of now, and I'm, I'm sure most most diplomats are the same because when you're on post saying you meet so many people in the Irish community and the Irish diaspora is so important, but it's it's a really le- real thing to me. It's not theoretical, just how strong an Irish community we have overseas and just how important maintaining that connection and being from a family that was the story of people who had to go. They were they were economic migrants, for want of a better term, like they left to have a better life, but they always wanted to come back and they did come back and then their children in turn went. Some of them came back and some of them didn't. And it's made it just really important to me to ensure that our diaspora are supported to remain in contact with our culture and, and, and society and to know what's going on in Ireland and to just feel a part of it. So for me, one of the most rewarding parts of my current career is getting to spend time with the Irish community and getting to be part of that, that bridge and that hand that Ireland is reaching out to our diaspora around the world. We'll talk a little about it later on because... You know, some of the times we hear a lot of talk about people leaving Ireland and rarely do we really hear about the number of people who come back to Ireland. And oftentimes net emigration is rather small uh, with the number that can come back. But I said we'll talk a little maybe about that later on. So then uh, when did you were you schooled uh, pretty local or not? Yeah, I got sent to boarding schools. <laughs> Oh no no no! I I was I was kept close to home. I was in uh, a very small school. Um, it, well, it was it's bigger now, but it was very small at the time. So there was nine in my class in primary wow. school. Right, right, right. When you finished school, you um, went. You did your degree in Maynooth. Um, uh, did you go straight from that to foreign affairs, or where where was the pull, or what was the career path? No, then? I I had one of those. Uh, I had an elaborate path to get to where I was going. So. Okay. Um, and I actually I do think I might have landed in the perfect career now because change is inherent in yeah. being in the foreign service. You're always changing. You're always going to be moving countries. And, and if you look at my career before that, I tend to stay for a couple of years doing something and then move on. So I went directly from from college uh, from doing my my degree into doing a master's degree in Cork. Uh, and then after oh, yeah. that, I decided that I wanted to do a PhD. Uh, in English, which was my favourite subject, and I was doing a PhD in Utopia. Um, so the study is the perfect society, uh, but with um, some of my friends, uh, first, uh, before knuckling down to this, I decided to go to China. I'd always wanted to go to China, and it's one of those things where, you know, I always wanted to go, and then a friend of mine said, I always want to go as well, and we're like, well, now it's safe, now we'll go together. Uh, so the two of us went off to, to teach English there, um, for a year and we ended up being joined by two friends, four of us went in total uh, to this school and while we were there there was actually uh, one, of, one of my first pandemics now I can say at the time there was only one, the SARS outbreak happened when I lived in China so we spent uh, a while that we were confined into our apartments um, and we used to put our rubbish out outside the door and somebody would come collect it and um, but one day I saw that like kids were literally going through our rubbish and um, uh, trying to find things. And I was kind of like, oh, like I didn't grow up wealthy. I grew up literally the child, the eighth child of a farmer on a bog. <laughs> so it's not like I had, uh, I was used to kind of like a surplus, but it still brought home to me how privileged I actually had been. Um, and 
you know, we traveled a little bit around Southeast Asia at the end, kind of like just backpacking, like so many people from the West do, and, and traveling through Vietnam and Cambodia and lots of other countries where just I saw so much child poverty, so much sanitation issues that I couldn't then go, I'm going to go back to my academic life and do some something theoretical about utopia. I can't do that. So I started working for NGOs instead. So I first worked for Goal for a couple mm-hmm. of years, mm-hmm. then I worked um, for Oxfam Ireland, and then I mm-hmm. worked for Christian Aid. And mm-hmm. in all of those roles, it was very much focused on, I want to help make the mm-hmm. world a better mm-hmm. place and help things for people. And um, there was a lot of specific projects there. There was a lot of fundraising through funds and um, like institutional funding applications, like written applications to trust an institution. And um, but then from that, I realized, you know, I don't want to respond to problems. I want to help make policy because so much of what I'm responding to are decisions that are made at governmental level. So how can I join the Irish government and be part of what Ireland <laughs> does in this space? Uh, so from that, I moved to the public service. And initially, I worked in the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. So I spent quite a few years working on the North-South Peace programs there. Um, and uh, some time as well working on EU cohesion funding regulations. And then from that, I joined Foreign Service. So it was a bit of a, a mm-hmm. windy road to get here, but kind of a, a, a sense of social responsibility, I think, and a desire for meaningful work, uh, personally meaningful, is something that's the connecting thread through the, the long road that got me here. Cathy, would you say it's fair to say, based on what you've said there, that many people in Ireland do not realise how privileged that they are. Yeah, and you know, the thing about privilege is um, it is invisible if you have it. Um, and that, that that falls into so many different things. You know, like I, in many ways, like there was times, like every household or the vast majority of households in Ireland in the 80s that my family were poor. But in other ways, as, as much as a Hallmark Christmas card this sounds, in other ways we were really rich because mm-hmm. we had a loving home and we were very sheltered from the just how bad the reality was. It just was the way things were for us. But we felt safe and protected. There's people in the world who aren't safe and protected. There's people who don't have clean water. There's people who don't have access to... So like, I think that's a real thing. And it's the same as anything that happens to you. You, know, you, you don't realise that you have privilege as an able-bodied person until something happens to your health and so mm-hmm. the, there's this whole layer of stuff that's opened up to you so yeah i think people are a lot a lot of people are a lot more privileged and lucky than they realize that they are and i think mm-hmm. all of us would be happier as people if we spent more time focusing on what we should be grateful for and the other aspect of that i think and we hear it currently is that <clears throat> ireland is experiencing a period of time where it is being asked to help people who are suffering, <laughs> who are um, in need of refuge. And the Irish were in need of refuge. And the the dots tend not to get joined lots of times. Um, and it, the, the uh, aspect of that people coming asking for help is a burden rather than it's a privilege to, that you can actually give, is rarely something that's been out, put across out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, it is so important for people to look at 
it, it can be true that things aren't ideal for everybody in Ireland and also be true that people who are fleeing um, war um, should be welcomed, uh, particularly in an island where we have gone so many other places. And you do sometimes hear the argument of, well, when we went X, we weren't made welcome. But that's all the more reason to not replicate that. That's right. um, so I don't, I don't think that that's an argument for, you know, doing the same thing. Right, right. So when you moved from NGOs and made it into government um, and was able to sit at a desk to somewhere define policy, um, lots of times people would think like that's pen pushing, that's boring stuff. Um, was it satisfying? Was it rewarding? Yeah, you know, I have found, I've been very lucky in my career in public service that I have been in roles that I find rewarding and satisfying. Sometimes roles that didn't um, that didn't match what I thought they were going to be when I joined them. So, for example, when I started working in North South programs, um, I didn't know that within three months Brexit was going to happen, which fundamentally changed the types of conversations that were being had around those. So, I mean, sometimes there's curveballs, and also, you know. I, I don't think that it's that it's pen pushing or that you know nothing can happen, but things are slower in terms of governmental policy level. So you're not you can't walk in and go, hey, I want things to be like this, yeah. and then achieve it. So um, sometimes things are might be a slower burn than you would want them to be, but that also when you create policy, it's harder to dismantle policy. So you know when you do achieve something, you achieve it for a long time, and. And so it's, it, it is worth it. It's worth working for things like that. So, for example, um, the, the peace programs that I were working at, they're over a seven-year funding period. So I was simultaneously working on the implementation of current programs and helping to design what rules would underpin the next go of them. So really you were looking at almost 14 years of what would happen at the same time, which is, all, which is really rewarding. It's not instantaneous results but also it's long-term achievements, and you can do that. I would have thought, the, well, the perception is out there that it's the politicians that define policy and create policy. You're telling me oh. that... Um, <laughs> you're telling me that uh, Sir Humphrey was real. <laughs> well, of course, politicians um, and, and the political parties are who set our programme for government, and what happens in policy comes from our programme for government. Right. But, you know, things like, so the, the, the agreement that would be made there would be, we will fund and participate in this, but then, and of course, everything that happens at the departmental level is signed off by the minister. But right. in the day-to-day -day work, um, that civil servants are doing the day-to-day -day implementation of that. Yeah, right. Then you um, have a strong, you went to Cork and there was a cultural aspect at it. You have a very strong interest in culture. I do, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, I would like, I don't have a very um, kind of like a highbrow or lowbrow delineation in that. I think that culture is something that is, it's lived and it's, it's joyful, uh, it's accessible, uh, different people like different things. So, of course, what, what falls into that category is subjective. But I think Ireland is so lucky that we have the culture that we do. Our music is so accessible. Um, our traditional music is just inherently catchy. 
Um, you see it any time. You can go anywhere in the world and start like playing Irish traditional music and people are going to want to join in and start tapping along. And then you have this really rich millennia of tradition that you can then add to really new and vibrant and emerging artists that are happening now. And we have just a wealth of culture here. And I've noticed in, I love books. That's like, I really love reading books. Personally, that's one of my favorite things. And I've been fascinated by the amount of people who I've met here who have not, might know that much about Ireland, but have just been all like, oh, I love Seamus Heaney, or I love Yeats, or they, they know our literature, or they know our music, even if they don't know that much else about it. And so it's not just a great thing to have, because it reaches out to people and helps us connect with our diaspora around the world, and gives people a, a way of feeling like they're still part at home, because they're consuming Irish culture. But it's such a great way of opening doors to people who don't know us because if they know just that one thing that can be enough for you to say ah you think that's good wait till i tell you about x y and z so it's a really powerful diplomatic tool but it's really powerful in terms of human connection and and just a few weeks ago i was at an event here in vancouver that was a a performance by heartbeat which is a group and um, that was set up that's um two it's an irish traditional group that plays and it's a first nations group that plays and together they they combine because there's such a strong storytelling and percussive element to our music and just listening to them perform together is so powerful and i loved um when i heard about the the name heartbeat i was I just thought it was the perfect name because the name of the Irish group is Cholope, so it's like music forever. And the name of the First Nations group is always singing. So you put together music forever and almost singing and you give it a name of the sound of what it literally means to be alive. Um, and just hearing, sitting there and hearing the percussion coming up through the floor, you can feel it in your feet. It was just incredibly emotive and powerful. I remember my first trip to Vancouver. And I went to a restaurant for lunch, and uh, the Cranberries was playing. And it brought it home to me as well that, you know, here I was on the western edge of North America, and uh, Irish music was being piped out through a, a restaurant. Um, and the wealth of that, and between the other ambassadors, like be it you two and Mick Flannery and the likes now, who have huge followings. And <clears throat> I was also amazed how powerful Phil Linnett had been in his day, that yeah. we, we focus on traditional in one sense, but it's the, excuse me, the broad expanse. And likewise with poem literature, you know, the, the modern Irish writers, um, that's, uh, while James Joyce and Seamus Heaney and um, others, William Butler Yeats, are all well known uh, in one sphere, but there's a wealth of modern writers who are also, um, I suppose, globally recognised at this stage. Yeah, completely. And the thing that's so interesting about that as well is um, there, there's a real problem in many ways with the canon because we tend to have a, these are the big famous people, these are the people that we will talk about, whether it's in music or whether it's in literature. And a lot of the time people forget that was always what was popular at the time we very rarely have anything that has survived to be a classic that no one read at the time it does happen sometimes but they were hot topics at the time and that's why 
I love when you see, like, I mean, Sally Rooney is so popular here. There's loads of Irish crime writers who nobody associates with Ireland because they're just like part of the international kind of like crime genre. But they're Irish and they're kind of like really, really famous. Marion Keyes is so famous all around yes, the world. Yes. Um, but that's not who people would think of when you think of classics. But I guarantee you, in a hundred years' time, they're the people who are going to be saying we are part of <laughs> these people came from our country. So I think it's really important to make sure that we highlight what is current and popular yes. as well as the classics because yeah. they are they, classics. In the few, yes, indeed. Um, another big aspect of your job must be trade, um, because the trade between Ireland and Canada has been growing steadily. And particularly since um, Brexit was happening and there was a need for the Irish companies to look elsewhere, um, a very strong, vibrant part of your portfolio. Yes, very much so. And kind of here in, so the, the consulate, even though it's for Western Canada, is based here in Vancouver. So um, we've got a very strong focus on um, like research into clean tech, um, marine tech, like things like like life sciences, kind of on the, the cutting edge research side of things is something that we really have in common and we've been linking up our higher educational institutions to work on progressing that. We've also, um, Irish um, institutions such as ICRAG um, have done a lot of work into researching energy transition and there's a huge mining industry here, so um, working on how can we move to carbon reduction and all of those connections is enormous um, for us, huge potential, and expand now that the fact that the consulate has expanded to cover such a large remit, so we're almost one-third of the surface area of Canada, although mm-hmm. obviously a lot of that in the Arctic Circle, um, not all of that is, it is populated, but it's still an enormous area, and it's really increased the amount of opportunities that we have for making linkages and connections, and we're very lucky that we have, not also the consulate, but that the consulate is working uh, with the support of our, our team, obviously, in uh, the embassy in Ottawa and the new consulate in Toronto, but also the fact that we have the state agencies here. So IDA, Enterprise Ireland and Tourism Ireland all have a base in Canada. Mm-hmm. And we're all really hoping to make those connections, whether it's for Canadians who want to come to Ireland or Irish companies who want to set up in Canada. So it's a really, um, it's a really strong uh, bilateral, it's a two-way mutually beneficial economic relationship with Canada, which is really, really positive. And I suppose the most important part of everything is people. And a few years back, uh, Toronto was the stopping off point where the Irish were going. And (laughs) that changed, very much so. And Vancouver appeared on the Irish map to the extent that I I was hearing regularly, oh, I'm going to Canada, we're going to Vancouver. Um, So there's been a huge influx. Huge. And it's really, uh, you know, this is something that is fascinating about the way Irish people, we move, we move in waves a lot, you know, when people come over and start being in a new place and it's like, come over here, it's really good. And so we have a very strong, so we have obviously the two, the two year visa. So there's a lot of people who come over for that and they do only stay for the two years or sometimes they even only stay for a summer and go home. But we're having a lot of as well as that people mean to come for two and then they go, sure, we'll stay for four. And then, it really kind of like there's a make or break period where they, they either, you know, marry a Canadian or don't. Like that's often what makes the, the change. Um, and so we have a really lovely mix now in Vancouver where we have 
people who have been here for generations, people whose parents came over from Ireland, but they're still really involved in the community, and people kind of like from their 40s up, now kind of a cohort in their late 20s, early 30s, who have small children, um, and that's why we're, we're really glad in the consulate that we've been able to, in the past year, we set up um, a parents and toddlers morning that we have to get some of the younger families in and to have that connection they can have. It's going to be a bit lonelier when you've got small kids and you can't go out all of the time, um, but to keep them connected. And then we have the younger people who are coming over constantly um, and uh, there's just there's newcomers arriving in Vancouver all the time because the word has gotten around um, and they've come over here to, to see what they make of it and start a new life. And the thing is, because we have the climate that we do over here, the, the weather changes. I know... I know it's colder for our East Coast colleagues, but in the mildness over here in British Columbia, it's going to look very similar to anybody coming over from Ireland because yeah. Vancouverites are all like, oh, the winter is so terrible, but it's just raining. <laughs> and, um, un- unlike the rain in Ireland, you can actually use an umbrella sideways rain. So it's actually nicer rain than we have at home. Huh. Um, so everybody is, is having a great time once they arrive here. <laughs> Um, Kathy, we're going, we're going to wrap up because uh, we need to keep an eye on time but it's been a real pleasure chatting with you and getting to know you and I hope that we can connect from time to time and uh, if there's things going on out there and uh, uh, just up when maybe a minister is coming in or anything like that and we can touch base um, but what I'd like to do is given that culture is such a an important part of who we are and how we are recognised around the world. I know there's a cultural icon that you have a, you have a, a graph for, and uh, we're going to who would who are who are we going to play a little bit of mu- music by? Okay, so uh, I have I have indeed a great graph for and a great maths on, as they say, and um, the wonderful Christy Moore, the voice of Kildare, and um, uh, just a, a folk icon and. Uh, the song I selected by him is one that's really meaningful to me because it is my darling mother's name is Nancy. Um, and this is a song that always, my dad used to always have a little bit of a croon um, whenever this came on. So um, Nancy Spain by Christy Moore is what I'd love to hear. Thanks very much, Austin. Thanks a million. We've been chatting with Cathy Gagan from uh, the consulate in Vancouver and a proud Galway woman. Thanks, Cathy. <laughs> Thanks.